Greetings Scrapple fans, we're leaving together but still we stand strong. Yes, that's right, it's the final episode of 2023's Rerun the Rivalry. It's where myself, you let me tell you something, co-host Lorcan Mullen and your other let me tell you something, co-host Simon Cross. Discuss every singles match in the Ring of Honor series between Brian Danielson and Nigel McGuinness. And Simon, it's been a heck of a journey. Yep. Uh, tetralogy, I think is the right term for a 5-1 or a tenology. No, a decalogue. A decalogy. That must be it. Dectrilogy? No, no, no. Because I'm thinking of Kirstov Kieslowski's decalogue series. Uh, I was trying to build off of Aliens quadrilogy. DVD box set. Yeah, I think Tetralogy might actually be five parts now I come to think about it. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> what does matter, Simon, is where are we, when are we, and is anything at stake for this final match? Just before I get there, that was a great microcosm of who we are as people. <laughs> <laughs> but to answer your question, we are at the 26th of September 2009 at the Manhattan Center in New York, New York. The event is called Glory by Honor 8, colon, the final countdown. It is a match, if you haven't figured it out by now, (laughs) between Nigel McGuinness and Brian Danielson. What is on the line? In terms of physical objects or physical titles, nothing. In terms of bragging rights... A little bit, because it's made apparent to both the viewing audience and the audience in attendance that this is the final time these two will lock up. So, I guess it's who gets the last laugh that's on the line. Well, going into this series, it's four wins for Danielson, three wins for McGuinness, and two time limit draws. There's nothing more British than the fact that we might rescue a draw. (laughs) That's peak Britain right there. No, peak Britain is that we don't. <laughs> but anyway... Come on, Tim! <laughs> it's funny, though, that you say what's at stake and what's on the line, and it's and you're struggling to think of something. Because this is the final match for both men. Danielson and McGuinness had both recently, at least in principle, agreed to sign for the WWE, and were in the midst of going through all of their medicals and formalities, as it seemed at the time, before moving on to the biggest promotion in all of pro wrestling yeah following in the footsteps of other previous ring of honor world champions like cm punk and oh actually cm punk will be the only one but other ones have gone on to other promotions like samoa joe to tna yeah and austin aries as well i suppose although he's come back and forth that doesn't matter but the main note i made about this match is that danielson and mcginnis seem to be giving the audience a harder fought, maybe better match than the crowd themselves wanted. Because mm. they go through a lot of the greatest hits of their previous encounters. And they push themselves physically doing a lot of the biggest spots, dives into the crowd, bleeding, headbutt spots, finishing holds and everything. But the crowd really don't know how to react because it's not for a prize that's going to have relevance in later shows. Nigel McGuinness is not really someone that they want to boo particularly. They want to cheer them both. Yeah. And as the match goes on, whilst they do do the moves, they kind of know in themselves that they can't necessarily get across the intensity of their desperate need to win, even if they bleed, even if they dive into the crowd, even if they do the powering up and everything. There is that sense of, it's the curtain call. And not in the sense of Goldust's reverse suplex finisher. 
Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of of the movie Semi Pro. Here we go again, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the best Will Ferrell movies ever. Oh man, I would. I mean, we we've got to be going like top twenty or something for that to work for me. Oh, I don't, I don't know. know about twenty. It's in my lot. Lo- we'll come. We'll, not the time. Anyway, spoiler alert, everyone who has not seen it. Prior to this basketball team's final ever game, they have their weekly TV closed circuit or local network TV show. And one of the co-hosts says, and um, thank you for watching. There will be a... Oh, no, there won't be a next time. And in the movie, the guy says, oh, now I'm depressed. But in this case, how it pertains to how these got, how the audience is soaking in the match is Nigel and Daniel are doing something really intense in the ring. But it's like, well, there's not going to be a next time. Like, this story has ended. We're watching... They're almost watching a deleted scene from a movie. Like, you you watch the movie, like, start to finish when you buy a DVD, and then people watch the deleted scenes. I don't know if it's a deleted scene of a movie. Maybe it's more like those... Uh, like, maybe before the final episode, or just after the final episode of a long-running series, they do a little behind-the-scenes documentary about how great everything was and how much people got on with each other. Are you saying it, we're watching wrestling Simpsons behind the laughter? Well, no, because that's in character. I mean, like, it's essentially out of character. I'm thinking more like if the Friends reunion f- episode had happened just after the season finale rather than, right, you know, 10, 15 years on. Or how it. the American office does do that. Yeah. Gotcha. They did like they did like a big event in Scranton, I think, for that as well. Like, there's almost next to nothing to say about the match because they don't do anything new that I can recall. Yeah. But they do do dangerous spots that the crowd just don't want to see necessarily. Yeah. Nigel shaved his head. That's pretty much the only difference. Yeah, that also is a factor as well because obviously in between this and last time is one of the biggest gaps actually and maybe the biggest gap in all the matches they've had with each other because, well, it's about 10 months since Rising Above so sort of equal to other periods of time mm. but a lot has happened in the time in between McGuinness has lost the Ring of Honor World Championship originally as Gabe Sapolsky had planned to book it and had been emphasised in Rising Above he'd been getting stronger with every defence and he was getting harder to beat yeah. and what Sapolsky was going to book it as was that he would lose the title to Tyler Black who we've been building up for all this time but Tyler Black wasn't going to beat him with the Phoenix Splash or anything like that he was going to beat him with like an inside cradle or a roll up basically the first time that someone hasn't won with a decisive like knockout killer pinfall move or a submission like the Bret Hart Diesel match yeah I I can't remember much more about it I don't know if Nigel would have then gone batshit and beaten up all the rest (laughs) yeah but Nigel, like is often the case with Ring of Honor World Champions after they've finished their run with the title, he needed time to heal, he needed time to recover. And so he went away and he came back. And initially there was that sense of, well, is he going to be the Bayface? And obviously by then, of course, Sapolsky had been removed by by the bookers and instead had been replaced by Jerry Lynn as champion. Very quickly they realised the crowd weren't into that. So they were still into Tyler Black. But this was just like... It was Ring of Honor's equivalent of trying to do the Roman Reigns thing of booking someone to win the title. Mm. But kept pushing it off. So they were like, well, we can't have Tyler win it from Jerry Lynn because getting a face over face and Jerry Lynn's not some big, oppressive super force to to rally against. Yeah. It's just a nice old man who's mint. Yes. So then they transitioned it to Austin Aries, who was the first ever two-time champion at that point. 
and he got into his heel persona, uh, where he called himself the greatest man who ever lived. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he wanted a, a run, and they wanted to give him a proper run. So again, that meant delaying Tyler Black getting the belt. And so by the time Tyler finally gets it, he'd had so many like false starts. He'd been in the triple threat match where Jerry Lynn had lost the title. He challenged Austin Aries a couple of other times. One time it went a 60-minute draw, and the crowd were just pissed off. They could tell it was being booked as a 60-minute draw. I think Austin Aries was literally running away for long periods of the match. Oh, God. And so the crowd then started turning on Tyler. Like, at the end of one of those matches, they started chanting, You're Lex Luger to <laughs> And, yeah, it's just... I wonder if Seth had that in his mind when he was seeing what was happening to Roman Reigns during his aborted runs with the title. Yeah. And the funny thing is, then they did it with Tyler Black and it happened all over again because then they started building up Davey Richards to be the top guy. And Brian Danielson, at the end of this show, one of the people he puts over in the crowd is Davey Richards, who he'd have beat him in this run-up of final shows. Because this was, like you say, Gloria Bayona, the final countdown because the last few matches of Brian Danielson's run in Ring of Honor were being given a countdown, like uh... Antonio Inoki's retirement tour. They'd done that with Samoa Joe when he was leaving Ring of Honor. So then when Tyler Black gets the belt, and they're trying to build up David Richards, but they want to give him, like, he comes close and he falls short, and he comes close and he falls short, so he can then win it at the right time. But then Tyler Black signs with the WWE very suddenly yeah. to become Seth Rollins, as we know him now. And so they had to quickly transition the belt over again, but they didn't have David. They didn't want to do it to David Richards. They wanted to do it, like, time for the right play, so... Uh... <laughs> then Tyler Black lost it to Roderick Strong. Yeah. Or was it Eddie Edwards? Basically, they screwed it up again. Ring of Honor at this point just was... Like, I was already kind of tapped out with Ring of Honor at this point, And it was not what I kind of... I was sort of wandering around with nothing to cling on to at that point, I suppose. Danielson, in a way, sort of got me back into watching WWE a bit more regularly because I wanted to see how was Daniel Bryan, as we now know him, going to work in WWE. And, like, NXT, I think, was, like, the first time I would watch a WWE show from, like, start to finish every week instead of just, like, dipping in and out. And, boy, was that an experience. God, I mean, we could, we could, (laughs) at some point in the future, quite easily talk at length about that first season of NXT. And, And, look, in your shoes, you coming from seeing Daniel Bryan in matches like this and all of his body of work in Ring of Honor to watching that, that must have been one hell of a culture shock. Well, yeah, but it wasn't like I wasn't a hundred percent like angry about it. I've never, I'd never really been a, like as so utterly defined by my anger at WWE, and it like consu- that was why I got into Ring of Honor because WWE wasn't giving me what I want. Yeah, they were doing something different to what I wanted, so I went elsewhere, and I didn't resent WWE for it. But there were certain ways that, like with, with Daniel Bryan in particular, because CM Punk, I didn't. I didn't have as much, maybe as much of an emotional connection to Daniel Bryan, him as I did with Daniel Bryan. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are photos of Daniel Bryan when he was, his hair was quite long and his beard was quite long. And my friend's going, oh, and he's wearing like a plaid check shirt. And they're going, oh, I wonder why you relate to this guy so much. Look, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a very roundabout way of saying that's what makes me laugh so much when you think of where he ends up less than four years from there from this moment and it was about four years earlier that he won the ring of honor world title yeah he's pinning john cena in the middle of the ring after hitting him with a his flying knee that became his finisher after that match and he does execute that move in this match i noticed he does yeah so yeah i don't know if that was like a little tribute to kenta because that was one of kenta's favorite moves as well 
Kenna must be pissed. Like, why do people keep nicking my stuff? <laughs> well, actually, he is pissed. I've seen his tweets. <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, I think what I'm thinking about the most when I'm watching this match is the fact that Brian Danielson went on from strength to strength after this. Yeah. But Nigel McGuinness, there's just an underlying... I don't know if tragedy is probably too extreme a way of putting it, but there's a melancholy. The fact that in his big farewell match, he's the supporting player to someone else. Yeah. And the fact that, as I said, if McGuinness had been booked to win this match, they would have literally ended the series (laughs) 4-4-2. And it's not like I don't think Danielson would have said, no, I don't want to lose. Yeah. But they put Danielson over him and he's... Final show is the final countdown tour. Mm. He doesn't get to be the last word for people. He goes off. He gets a moment. And Danielson brings him up after he's done his speech. And they both pose together. But there is that sense of... I don't know because I don't know if this point... If he's already told WWE that he's had issues and paid for bicep surgery... To make himself eligible for him to work for them. And then they just turn him down and that and he goes scrambling to tna for work afterwards so was that the reason it fell through was it the bicep surgery something along those lines he was honest about the fact that he's had issues with various things and if you look at him he does look a fair bit leaner than he has done before yeah which suggests that because he has just come from surgery and everything so he has not had the opportunity to work out as hard as he did before. And I wonder if, again, them looking at him as he was there, as opposed to the Nigel we saw at, like, you know, uh, Unified, who's a big lad, big muscly lad. This one, he's a bit more of a... He's not, like, skinny, but he's noticeably thinner. It was Vince's WWE. And also, he's lost the the Billy Idol spiky hair look yeah. and just gone for a straight shaved head so he almost looks a lot more nondescript than he did before the, in all the previous matches there was a sense of him as a, a personality and character and that's been kind of stripped from him as well because when he came back there was this thing uh, is he going to be a face or not but again he got hurt again quite soon after coming back and I just I don't I, again I wasn't really following the show because it was a weekly TV show at this point but I do remember seeing like clean shaved Nigel McGuinness before it's been announced and it's like where's he gonna go now and it was basically like an even more bitter version of the character that he played as Ring of Honor champion that we'd seen from the sixth anniversary show onwards yeah where he was just basically saying I've had enough of getting hurt by these other wrestlers I'm going out to hurt people now yeah not to win or to beat them I'm going out to hurt them and that would have been lost he moved on because that was sort of the cycle of Ring of Honor in those sort of indie promotions even ECW you build up these stars over 18 to 36 months they run their cycle and then they kind of need to go to pastures new that's what happened with Shane Douglas that's what happened with Raven that's what happened with Sandman that's what happened with even Sabu briefly and all of them ended up coming back at various points yeah. but they were never the focal point of the promotion in the way that they were when they were champions and it would have been interesting to see how they could have booked Nigel afterwards because there would have been that sense of he's probably not going to be champion again because they, you get that one reign. And especially with Danielson and McGuinness, it had gone on for so long as well, both their reigns. I mean, McGuinness's went longer than Danielson's. So again, it's another one of those things of like, what have I got to do to be on this guy's level? Yeah. And even in the final show, he doesn't get to be on his level. I mean, you kind of wish he could have got like either gone a month earlier or 
Bet has still gone a month later because they probably would have put him over Danielson. Yeah. On, <laughs> on Danielson's way out. But on earlier, maybe, well, no, because he would still have been hurt from the bicep surgery. Not ignore me, that doesn't, doesn't work. <laughs> well, I wonder, like, if because of him doing this farewell and then not going to WWE, if it was a case of he couldn't bring himself to go back to Ring of Honor straight away and end up going to TNA because of that. Yeah, where he becomes Desmond Wolf. Yeah, and I was looking that up and it's fascinating because that whole run's only about a year and it just is another case of like talent only gets you so far and luck plays a part in where you end up and timing as well on top of that yeah well timing's part of luck as well because i I was always a bit annoyed when cm punk during his ufc interviews in the build-up and they were saying oh well i wish you good luck and he said luck is for losers it's like well you know unless mickey gall or mike jackson had literally slipped or done like an Anderson Silva to their own leg when kicking you, you would have needed luck to ever win a fight in the UFC. Look, Homer, I'm not going to lie to you. There's a good chance you can beat Tatum, but you've got to visualise it. <laughs> a congenital heart defect has fell Tatum on the way to the ring. Like, because luck went CM Punk's way for him to be given the opportunities he was given. Oh, yeah. Just as similarly, a certain amount of luck went Brian Danielson's way. Like, I think one of the luckiest things for Brian Danielson was the fact that the Shield, when they were brought in, needed bodies to beat. And Danielson and Kane were the perfect ones to put up against them. And that worked. Or just Danielson just copying, I can't remember the UFC fighter's name now for some reason. But he was a bit of an odd character. He was an eccentric. He was one of those positive visualization people. Oh, yeah. I know you had an amazing fight against Clay Guida, but for some reason his name's escaping me. There's people yelling at me right now for that, but and not just for this. But, <laughs> <laughs> Danielson just doing that as a little bit of a m- mimicry, and not even realizing it was a thing. And then Vince pointing it out to him as thing, like, "Oh, you do that yes thing." He's like, "What yes thing?" And, he's just, you know. and so you need all those things of luck. And with McGuinness, it was just so many things that were unfortunate to him. Like, going to TNA at that point, initially being put up against Kurt Angle and having a really massive debut where he attacks Kurt Angle backstage, then wins a fight in the ring, and he's set up to be his pay-per-view opponent straight away. But then they're like, but it is Kurt Angle. Mm. So it's kind of along the lines of when I got so frustrated when Athena turned up in AEW and they put her straight up against Jade Cargill. I was like... But she's going to be putting Jade Cargill over. So she's going to have to start all over again when that's done, which she has done in Ring of Honor. Yeah. But again, it's like there's Ring of Honor and then there's Ring of Honor. (laughs) (laughs) There's the truth. (laughs) And so McGuinness then goes again. They put him in with Fortune. And I remember I rewatched the whole of that infamous Jay Lethal Rick. It's probably the biggest thing Nigel McGuinness was a part of during his time in TNA. But to be fair... It's maybe one of the ten biggest things Ric Flair was a part of in his whole career. <laughs> that whole angle. Yeah. But what's depressing about that is is to set up a match with Nigel, Desmond Wolf, which just Jay Lethal wins because Jay Lethal's over. And Desmond, because Desmond was put in Fortune, and I watched the promo beforehand where Ric Flair was going on about how great Fortune was, listing off all his members and forgetting Desmond. Ooh. And having to be reminded to say Desmond as well. And it was also around the time that Eric Bischoff and Hogan comes in. That's a mess. 
do you remember? And there was that time when they were trying to do that whole television global, whatever the title was called at the time. And it was going to be a fan poll to see who would challenge for the title. And they wanted it to be so. And the whole, it was like an overwhelming vote for Nigel. Yeah. But Eric was like, I don't like him. Yep. And like, you refused to have him challenge at first. And then when he did challenge at last, they had him lose it in a squash or something. So I was looking at it like within the a year, all this stuff happens to him in just a year. And his final run of matches for TNA are house show losses to Jeff Jarrett. Ooh. Uh, mm, I mean, it's... <laughs> that was a whole gamut of emotions. <laughs> I mean, you're going to have a good time with Jeff, and Jeff will look after you in the ring. Which, considering we're talking about a man who ultimately has... But it was just that sense of he was going to be the future of maybe WWE only a year earlier. Yeah. And then he's just losing to Jeff Jarrett in 2011. I mean... God knows, Jeff Jarrett in 2023 is somehow still a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll probably be in 2024. That man defies aging. I don't know if he defies aging. If you want to talk about luck being a part of a wrestling <laughs> career. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't, again, talent, but luck. Then he goes back to Ring of Honor, but this is also around the time that he contracts hepatitis. Put, or at least he finds out he's diagnosed with hepatitis, puts it down to his time bleeding in the ring. He realizes the effects of all these concussions. And then he does like a little farewell tour whilst he's starting to be an on-screen talent for Ring of Honor and a commentator and a commissioner. Yeah. And apparently it's just like one of the most depressing things to sit through because it's him going to all these little British promotions and little indie promotions around America that he started off at. And just his farewells in front of like very small number of people losing to a guy who did not go on to have a great career. Uh. And during that tour is when Daniel Bryan wins the World Heavyweight title for the first time by cashing in his money in the bank. Oh, I remember that. And that's where the Yes character starts to come into play, really. Like, he celebrates by yelling Yes on the commentary table. And Michael Cole is livid at the time. I do remember that. Yeah. But again, I mean, just like how we said so much of what Nigel found in his character was through his heel turn. That was the start of the heel turn of Daniel Bryan and the yes, getting him to where he was. So we don't have anything to say about the match, really. No, but... It's like bits of rising above, bits of all the the first few matches with the technical exchanges. and It's funny, though, like the heelish thing that McGuinness does with this one is uh, trying to prevent the dive happening. Instead of putting a chair in front of him, he just puts the referee in yeah, front of him. I like that. I did like that. And even having Danielson coming into the... A bloody Danielson rolling into the ring at 19 and, you know, winning the match with downward elbows, which they both do. Nigel does do the I have till five, but he doesn't say it. He gestures for the crowd to say it. There's moments where they're like, oh, the crowd's going to be, like, with us and, like, you know, going to go along with whatever we do. But then we'll put our match on. And that's where it... Not falls down, because it's hard. That, that's not fair on them. And the match isn't a poor quality at all. It's just where it disconnects. Yeah, I wonder if they'd done this exact same match with a hot crowd, would we have rated it higher? And it's not like the crowd isn't hot, but they're not hot in the way that they'd be hot for for the match they're trying to present to. They're hot for the wrestlers, but not the wrestling. Yeah. Our use of hot is very strange in this situation. Yeah. <laughs> Can be read in many different ways. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it's so funny with everyone saying, oh, I'm going to punt, and then they do their farewell. I don't know if you watched those. I'm guessing you didn't. No. Yeah, you usually don't. <sighs> The notion of extracurricular is (laughs) an anathema to Simon. A little bit. It's just sad when you see this. I don't know if it's sad, because Nigel has had successes later on in life. 
Oh, and and now, by the way, one of the best things going for AEW at the time of recording. Sometimes that's not saying much. Sometimes that is. <laughs> yeah. And we've got a whole other time to talk about that. <laughs> what I will say about this match is I fucking hate the colour commentary. Oh. Chris Hero, I don't know what he was on, but it wasn't a, the wavelength for this match. Yeah. He was trying to do like Bobby Heen and both these guys suck kind of commentaries. His tone was so... It was like when Phil Neville was getting bollocks for like... He was bored. He didn't want to be there. Yeah. Then he was going into like technical stuff and that could have been vaguely interesting, but he was like... It just did not match the tone of what was the whole rest of the event was going on. I'm kind of surprised that someone like Chris Hero would so misjudge the whole mood for it. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he was trying to be all method because he was like the character of Chris Hero would be like this, but... I think he was trying to be in character. But read the room, mate. Just read the room. Even Bobby Heenan would hold it back a little bit. If it was like a face versus face match, like he's in suit, he gets a couple of bits in, like during the Bret Hart David Boy Smith match, or like Jesse Ventura during the Hulk Hogan Ultimate Warrior match. Yeah. He knows when to turn it on and when to not turn it on. And Chris Hero just did not know that, or he knew it and he didn't. Care. Commentary is a is a very different skill set to wrestling. Mm. There's overlap, but not a great deal. Yeah, and Nigel excelling at it after a number of years doing it oh. as well. It should be said at this point. I mean, he's. Uh, is his career as a commentator now longer than his career as a wrestler? Quite possibly. If he was commentating from about 2012 to now, that's 11 years. Yeah. So, yeah, it's about equal, really. Yeah. Well, no, I think he went to America in 97, so it was a bit longer. But he'll be there sooner, soon enough. Of course, also his side hustle as a magician. I don't know if you've seen that. I was annoyed. and I found out about it too late. But when we went down to London for All In, I'm like, I'd have loved to have seen Nigel McGuinness's magic show. Well... Here's the question now. On to the future. Yeah. He talks, does it so much specifically for Danielson, the digs, the jibes. They have access to all of this archival footage. Nigel retired due to concussions and illnesses. I mean, Brett retired due to concussions. And so when he was booked to wrestle after that, it was very clearly designed for him not to have to do those. Yeah, but we, I don't know if that's a different, that that was like a different type of specific concussion that ended his career. We knew a lot less about head trauma back then. Yeah. If that Goldberg super kick happened at the same time that these guys are going through that and Brett was the same age, would we get Brett? Back now, like we have with Edge, well, Edge was spinal stenosis, but that's by the by. Or would we get him back like Brian? Well, here's another one. AEW have been willing to book Katsuyuri Shibata. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And there was that picture he tweeted all in weekend of jacked uh, Nigel McGuinness in front of the in front of the mirror. Well, yeah, he's clearly kept himself in good shape throughout the whole time. Brian Danielson's got a lot of cachet in AEW. He's basically, well, we found out he's, he's, Tony's like, if I go down, it's him that runs things. Well, I wonder if Danielson had been healthy in time for it, would they have booked Danielson McGuinness for All In this year? And I think... Is that the plan for next year? I have an inkling it is. Obviously, a lot of things have to go, because then you need luck. They didn't have the luck. Yeah. And that man deserves it. I I can see Danielson wanting to give McGuinness his moment at Wembley. Yeah. 
because it's obvious that, well, I was wanting to reflect on this, because again, there is a melancholy to this, there's a sadness to this, knowing what happened to McGuinness afterwards, but there's also a joy in this, knowing that this guy that got over in front of this kind of a hardcore crowd, with his size and his skill set and everything, it seemed like this would be his ceiling, and the fact that only four years later, he's a WWE champion, four and a half years later, he main events WrestleMania 30, yeah, he'll be head of the class the year that he's inducted into the Hall of Fame in the WWE. Absolutely, what he's done with Ring of Honor, what he did subsequent to that, what he's doing in AEW, there is a legitimate argument that he's the greatest wrestler of all time. Yeah, he's definitely in the. Uh, I was going to say wrestler of the century. He's quite. He's quite possible. I think he is that. I think he just is. We're- well, wrestler of the quarter century at the very least. Yeah, I, like, yeah, I, I, I take your point. But I'm thinking of who else there would be as candidates: Tanahashi, Okada. Mm. Depending on how you want to look at it from a cultural aspect, CM Punk. You can't ignore talking about it. You can make a case for Triple H. You can make a case for Big Match John. Yeah, obviously, yeah, John Cena's got to be considered that. You can make a case for Roman Reigns. Yes. Yes. It depends on the criteria you're following. But we're not about to go into that. I've got a final point. They did finish it slightly differently because it was with a triangle choke that he knocked out McGuinness yeah. instead of the traditional... Well, he does do the elbows, but that's just by the by. It's just a match that they've had before with a couple of extra moves that you don't usually see from them. And I would give the match like three and a half stars. Same. Like that sort of range. Functional. Yeah. So let's just go quickly through the matches. What would you say is the best match? For me... It's very obvious, it's very basic, but like third and fourth are sixth anniversary show and rising above. And I know there are some people who argue for sixth anniversary show, and I can get it on like a storyline front. Like if that's what you want as an element of wrestling, like deeper character. That's the version of the match that would probably be the most over with any kind of wrestling fan. I think I'm going to go for Driven. Because it's just that intent. It was like both of them presented their peak. The crowd's just so molten hot for it. There's less of an uneasiness with the blood involved. Yeah. And it's maybe the best example I could think of, of a wrestling match that's a fight, but it's a technical fight. It's like a technical... It's maybe the matches that Stone Cold Steve Austin would have done if his knees and neck had been (laughs) injured by 1997. If we had mechanic Austin. I am torn. My gut took me straight away to unified i can't really look beyond that one i think you've got the audience you've got the fact it's in it's their most famous match definitely yeah yeah and it's the one that i had in my head prior to this rival like when we were discussing which ones to do and all i saw were still images in power slam at the time and obviously you're you're in g-ring of honor at this phase i'm i'm a man who doesn't really have access to sky uh, well, a teenager who doesn't really have access to Sky, but loved pro wrestling and loved reading about it in Power Slam. And I can see that image of bloody Nigel McGuinness. I can I, I can visualise that magazine page now. So that that hit, and I was like, what is this at the time? And now having like seen it as part of this series, seeing how it fits into the story, it has that little bit extra for me, that X factor, that's get, get the bingo cards and all that. But that's just wrestling as it at its purest form and we aped it a little bit about how it's the british thing to do but it is so british to like have that glorious moment and then nope don't get it (laughs) well yeah i guess because the underlying tragedy of the story is that nigel was never quite as good as 
Danielson, having him lose the final match and having to give the spotlight on his own farewell to the promotion that made both of them and yeah. that they gave everything to. There is such a tragedy to it. And so I do hope, like, I hope we do rerun the rivalry to part 11 sometime. And if they if they book that match, that definitely greatly increases my chances of going to it. Mm. I've said if they book Osprey Omega, I'd probably be very keen to see that. And if they book Danielson McGuinness... I'd be very yeah. That, especially if they book both of them, I'd feel like it's like my duty to go to these as an Englishman. It's my duty to go to these. So things. I already have my ticket. Yeah, where are you seated? This uh, better I've, or worse? Slightly worse. We went for a one hundred and fifteen pound ticket, so like a tier back. All I'll say, Simon, is keep an eye open on those resales because I don't think they're filling that place up. Ah, uh, it's set out for a smaller attendance because of the whole Taylor Swift thing. Yeah, that whole thing. <laughs> I guess that means they're going to get a fancy entrance ramp this time. No uh, SummerSlam 92 recreation. I'd prefer that. But anyway, what I will say, because I don't want it to be all negative, it's funny watching these matches how... It's like how I said, like, Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin WrestleMania 13. And the story of their feud is that Bret Hart becomes at least in a partial way, corrupted and angry, and he changes. He changes because of the circumstances around him. Mm. Whereas Stone Cold Steve Austin never changes. It's the crowd that changes and Brett that changes. Like, I would argue that the story of WrestleMania 13's match is a moral man becoming immoral, whereas an amoral man remains amoral. Yeah. Whereas the story of these 10 matches is really that Danielson never changes that much. He becomes a bit more of white meat baby face towards the end of the run. But he's still him. Yeah, there is even that part of him that will do little prickish Brian Danielson spots in some of these later matches. And he still is utterly relentless and brutal in hitting him with elbows when he has to accept the one time it's a gentleman's agreement. And look where that got him. But if you look at when people talk about him whenever he was on table for free during his WWE run, he is a prick. He is a wind-up merchant in real life. That's him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of these parts of Danielson are in him, and that's what makes us all complex as humans. Yeah. I think we've all got a baby face and a heel inside of us. He made us feel sorry for Ryback in that Table for Free episode, man. I never felt sorry for the Ryback. <laughs> oh, and yeah, yeah, and the fact that he would do that. He would always call him the Ryback. You could tell he's doing it to be an arsehole. <laughs> That's a perfect example of who, what I'm talking about. But yeah, it's funny watching the changes of Nigel McGuinness, both in how he wrestles and how his character evolves. And I do think that, like, especially... The third version of him, I suppose, after pure title, cheeky, underhanded heel, to resilient, hardworking, lariating babyface, to bitter, shove it up your ass <laughs> heel champion. Yeah. Which I think is probably the one that's the truest to him as a person oh, of how yeah. he was feeling. That's not, it comes way too easily for him on commentary. Mm. And even that one changes into, he becomes as close to arrogant champion Brian Danielson in the first few matches in the Rising Above match. But as we say, the way that Adam Pearce booked it, it's slightly different to how he never, ever, ever gets a full clean-as-a-whistle victory over Danielson at any point. Yeah. And Danielson gets at least two, mm. you can argue. Like, decisive ones. And they're the two best matches that everyone remembers, more than anything. 
But that's great. That's what's great about wrestling, that there are those stories. And the fact that Nigel is truly the protagonist of this story, I believe. Like I said, Joseph Monticello's comparison of it to Amadeus has a lot of validity to it. It's not one for one. But if you watch Amadeus, you can understand where... You know, there aren't that many Mozarts. There are, there aren't that many Salieri's, but there are more Salieri's than there are Mozarts. But that's a, that's an easier replacement to find for a Salieri. But there have been people after Amadeus that would go, you know, Salieri was a good writer. Yeah. You know, it's like having a go at well, to go obscure for our non-British listeners, non-British and Irish. You know, it's like having a go at Mark Selby for not being Ronnie O'Donnell. <laughs> Yeah, I was going. Well, I was going to use the Lisa's rival episode. Yeah. Hey, there's nothing wrong with being second place. And now presenting their number two hit, "Born to Runner Up." Boo! Why would they come to the concert just to boo us? Nigel must have been thinking that a few times in his during his run. <laughs> but what I want to say about Nigel that I think. You can't just dismiss him as just part of Danielson's narrative. Yeah. Especially when you look at the matches and you go through the whole course of the story. Because they are re- this is really McGuinness's story more than it is Danielson's. And I was thinking about this. The, best, the, the highest compliment I think I can give Nigel McGuinness is, in comparison is... Ric Flair is the greatest rival for many of the greatest wrestlers ever. Yes. You can argue he's Harley Race's greatest rival. Stings. He was Sting's greatest rival. He was Dusty Rhodes's greatest rival. Steamboats. He was Ricky Steamboat's greatest rival. Arguably, he was Kerry Von Erich's greatest rival. There, you'd put that with like the Freebirds, possibly. He was maybe Nikita Kolos' greatest rival again. Magnum TA was maybe Magnum TA's greatest rival. But only one of those people is Ric Flair's greatest rival. I would say, I think if you ask most people, it would probably come down to either Sting or Ricky Steamboat. I mean, they're the two I named. I would go because Ricky Steamboat's his contemporary. I would say Ricky Steamboat. Brian Danielson or Daniel Bryan has been either at least either the greatest rival or has given the greatest match to a lot of great wrestlers out there. But I think Nigel McGuinness... He he gave Nigel McGuinness his greatest match and his greatest rivalry, obviously. Yeah. By far. But I think Nigel McGuinness gave Danielson his greatest rival and his greatest rivalry. And maybe his greatest matches. Yes. Yeah, I'd say that. Yeah. Sorry, the back part of my brain is like, ooh, who else would I say that about Danielson about? But there are are loads. I I just don't want to like... And look, listeners know there are loads. Yeah, this isn't the time to go over that. Yeah. But I feel like we can't go any further than that, really. This doesn't even our final episode of the year, Simon, because before we wind it up, what can people expect in their audio stockings a couple of days after Christmas Day on the 28th of December? I'm buzzing. I am buzzing. This is one of my favourite episodes of the year. It really shouldn't be, given how often you... Oh, my absolutely atrocious prediction record, yeah. You're not the only one that gives me pounders for that. I have had communications from <laughs> listeners telling me that I am, well, I'm a moron, effectively. Yeah, but they don't need those episodes specifically. <laughs> no, 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 they don't. I didn't need to start up a podcast with you to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've, well, I've set myself up here. <sighs> We're doing 2023 in review. Ooh. It's going to be a long one, so when you're sick of your family, a couple of days after Christmas, you can use us to hide away for several hours, or just tune them out. Listeners of Happy Families are also welcome to to our podcast, of course, but, well, you know. What are you doing listening to podcasts? (laughs) But anyway, until then, 
Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with their com- with their personal uh, ratings of your personality on the moron scale, how can they do so? <laughs> people can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm so Simon Cross Free. Free is out of ten where I would optimistically place myself on said scale. My name's Lorcan. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for the A at the start of American Dragon Brian Danielson. N for the N at the start of Nigel McGuinness. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. If you put down gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. Lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Thank you, Brian Danielson and Nigel McGuinness, for ten wonderful chapters of an incredible saga that maybe we'll get that epilogue to one day. But until then, thank you for letting us tell you something and for going on this journey as we re-ran the rivalry. (laughs) 